Thanks, Austin. Well, good evening. Uh, I want to add my welcome to Ethan's. Uh, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. So great to see you come together as we wrestle through this part of the Bible. Uh, there are times when I come across parts of the Bible and I'm just like, what on earth is this about? Today is one of those times. So why don't we pray that God would help us to see what he has for us in his word through this horrible part of history, that we might understand him better and ourselves better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've not left us on our own, but that you have spoken. We pray tonight as we grapple with all sorts of atrocities before us in this passage, that you would show us both what you are like and what we are like. And as we walk away from your word tonight, we might walk away changed, having a renewed vision of you and your compassion for your people. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as you hear that passage read, as you come through it, you kind of think, what is going on here? I don't know if that's what you were thinking as you were going through reading this passage. We're, we're confronted by all sorts of atrocities, distorted relationships everywhere between man and man, uh, between father and daughters, between citizens of a city, between humanity and God. There's just destruction everywhere you look in this passage. And it's, it's a shocking passage. You're kind of like, what is happening? But ultimately, it's not the sex and seduction that's the most shocking part. We're kind of used to that in the world that we live in. Uh, sex and seduction is everywhere, in advertising, in, in the things we see, in the movies we watch, in the conversations our friends talk about. I want to put it to you tonight that there's something far more disturbing in this passage, something that we're not used to, something that's even more countercultural, and it's this. The idea that every single person on the face of the planet will be judged by God. The idea that every single person on the face of the planet will be judged by God. None of us likes judgment. I mean, who likes, yeah, I love being judged. I don't know. I hate it. I hate the idea of having to face the music. Uh, when I was growing up, I was about 16, I faced one of the most scariest situations I've had to face in my life. And that was meeting Sarah's parents for dinner. Right? It's a scary moment that you go to meet the parents of your girlfriend. Uh, Sarah's dad was a high school teacher in our school and he was quite high up. And, uh, and I wasn't the most popular kid with the, the, the teachers. Uh, I'd been suspended twice. One of those times involved an incident with an air rifle. I was often found outside of the classroom apologizing to teachers for the smart aleck comment that I'd made. Like when the teacher said, you get a wooden piece of wood. And I went, sir, can you have a piece of wood that isn't wooden? Out. This was my life. And so you can imagine with my history in school, what Sarah's dad thought of me going to that dinner and how I felt that night. <laughs> Sarah's mum, uh, she's great now. If you ever listen to this, Chris, you're great. Uh, but... <laughs> I mean, on the audio recording, she's not some weird kind of spirit floating around, just in case you're wondering. But Sarah's mum, she's quite opinionated. She tells you what she thinks. She asks all these questions. And I'm like, this is pretty scary, seeing Sarah's mum and dad. And, and then Sarah had two siblings. She still has two siblings. And like, I'm like, I'm going to be on view in front of these people as we eat dinner. Every kind of mouthful of whatever they give me, I've got to eat. I've got to be on my best behavior. They're going to be working out if this guy is good enough for their prize sister or if he's bad enough 
because <laughs> she deserves it, because she's hassled them all their lives, and she'll be like, ah. Anyway, I don't know, whichever one it was. So you can imagine what it was like for me going to the dinner when I'm dating Sarah and meeting the parents. I reckon it would have been a pretty similar feeling for Megan Merkel if she went to the family dinner, don't you? She rocks up, uh, family dinner with Harry. Oh, your grandma's here, your majesty. Like, how does that work? I reckon she would have been feeling just like me that night. A judgment, people looking at you, picking over what you say. Like, no one likes to be judged. But the question for us in this story is, is the judgment deserved? And is the judge just? Is the judgment deserved? And is the judge just? Well, as the passage starts, we're met with some intriguing oddities. We've been following the life of this man, Abraham, for the past three weeks. God has promised Abraham that he would bless him. He would make his descendants as numerous as the stars. He would give him a great land. And through this man, Abraham, he would bless every single person on the face of the planet. They're amazing promises. And really, the storyline of the Bible follows these promises to look for their fulfillment the whole way through. As we get to chapter 18, though, the pace slows, as does Abraham. You see, by this point, Abraham's 100, 100 years old. I can't even imagine what it's like to be 100 years old. But as we meet him, here is a man who's 100 years old sitting by his tent, and he looks up. And suddenly, out of nowhere, three men just appear. It's like, boom. Now, I'd imagine at 100, you haven't got a very long depth of vision. So maybe they were walking for a while, and suddenly he's nodded off, and he's like... And like, whoa, they're just in front of him. I don't know if that's what's happening. But here they just suddenly appear. Now look with me at Genesis 18, verse 2. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and bowed to the ground. Imagine the scene. A hundred-year-old man getting up from his seat, right? And he runs to meet him, like... Like some sort of tortoise coming across. What would that have been like to see? I mean, he really is 100. It keeps talking about um, Sarah, who's 95. Her womb is closed. Her, their bodies are old and broken. They're not kind of at the, at, the, at the fitness of their life. And when he gets to these three men, he bows down or maybe falls over. But he's exhausted, right, maybe. But what we're about to see is something that Abraham saw that was very different. There's something special about these three men that got a hundred-year-old man out of his seat, running to meet them and responding very, very differently. He meets these three men and Abraham offers to bake them some bread. He asks them to hang around for a while. He's like, come and have a sandwich on the park bench. Right? It'll be, it'll be great. The men accept. Then we see the strangest turn of events. Look at verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent, slowly, and said to Sarah, quick, <laughs> It took me three minutes to get here. (laughs) Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Meanwhile, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf and gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. He couldn't do that bit. Then Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and he set them before the men and he served them as they ate under the tree. Now, you don't notice it at first, but three measures of flour is 11 kilograms. 
That's like 22 loaves of bread. Now, I don't know what for a student budget that is. Is that like, what, three months? That's a lot of bread. Just quickly pick up some bread for these three men. Yeah, go break 22 loaves, 18 kilos of bread. That's a lot of carbs. And then he goes and finds the fattest calf and he kills it and he gets curds and milk. This is not a quick sandwich on the park bench. What's going on for Abraham at this point? Is he just one of these people that's just irrationally hospitable? People that always want to invite people in and love on them. You know when people say that, love on them? I'm always like, oh, that's gross. <laughs> but they love them and, and care for them. And he's just, these strangers have come along and he's like, oh, I really want to go above and beyond. But why would he do that? Why? There's something in this. He sees something about these men and the narrator gives us a clue of what that is in verse 1. Genesis 18, verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. Literally, Yahweh. These were no three men. The reason that he got out of his chair and ran and prepared this amazing dinner was because he was about to dine with the divine. God was here. Until Jesus turns up in the New Testament, this is the only recorded meal of anyone eating with God. It's amazing. And here, Abraham gets to dine in some way, sense or form with God himself. No wonder it was a feast. No wonder Abraham ran. This is not just kind of irrational hospitality. God turned up. The God who promised him that he would be the father of many nations, whose descendants would be as numerous as the stars. The God who keeps his promises. God is like, my God is here. <laughs> but then the narrator shows us a difference between Abraham and Sarah and helps us to recognize something about ourselves and God. Unfortunately, the Christian Standard Bible um, masks this, as does the ESV and the NIV. Just, I'm not trying to pick on translations today, but we will a little bit. But our translation says in, uh, I think it's verse 10, it says this, The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in a year's time. But actually in the Hebrew, it doesn't say the Lord, it just says he said. And it's right, it's pointing to the Lord, but I think the narrator is trying to show us when he says he said, But Sarah doesn't know who's speaking. Have a look. Genesis 18.10. I will certainly, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time. And your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abram and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. After I've become shriveled up and my Lord is old, will I have delight? She says, in the quietness of her mind. <laughs> she knows God promised Abraham that she would have children. She just didn't believe it fully. She, she doubted, I guess, in a sense. I mean, and you can't blame her, can you? She's 95 years old. Do you know of a 95-year-old that's ever given birth to a child? I mean, they say at the age of 35, from 35 onwards, the likelihood of having problems of having children goes, gets worse and worse and worse. If you're 40... There's some tricky stuff that needs to happen. If you're 50, it's like, well, you want to be careful here before you have kids. If you're 95, show's over. This is not happening. And literally, the original kind of says that she was kind of past the age of womanliness. Menopause had happened. It was all over for her. It's just not likely to happen. And so she kind of goes, who is this clown? Who are these people saying, I'm going to have children? This is a joke. She doesn't say it out loud, just says it to herself. And then suddenly, the narrator reveals to us And to Sarah, who is speaking to her. 
Yahweh. Verse 13, chapter 18. But the Lord, Yahweh, he says now, asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. We can imagine how Sarah is feeling at this moment. You know that moment where you say something about someone and then they turn up? I'm like, whoops, God turned up. Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh. (laughs) No. You did laugh. You can just imagine the comic genius. I can lie to God. I can get this past him. I didn't laugh. It didn't happen. He's like, shut up. (laughs) Every time she wants to make an excuse. You did laugh. Where Hagar last week learnt that God sees her even though she'd been rejected. This week, Sarah sees that God sees inside her. She laughed to herself. Sarah suddenly realises that this true and living God who made these promises knows what's even going on inside her head. She was doused in the reality that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. But she can't hide from God. And that he knows every intricate part. Ironically, it would be her great-grandson David who would put this reality in an unforgettable verse. Psalm 139, verse 1. Listen to David speak. Lord, you search me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says in Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows everything. Every train of thought, every desire of our heart. Think about it for a second. There's not one person on the face of the planet who has a thought that God doesn't know. He sees all, he knows all. That's amazing. I don't even know what I'm thinking half the time, but he knows everything. And he sees it for everyone and every person that has ever lived. And he knows it perfectly. He's never taken by surprise. Oh, didn't see that coming. He's never been mistaken. There's nothing about me or you or anyone else that he does not know. Nothing. The theologian uh, Tozer, he sums it up so well. Let me read to you what he says. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits. All being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. God knows all. You cannot hide from God. We cannot lie to him or pull one over his face. He sees your life and mine. 
can't hide from God. Yet he does not hide from us. He keeps his promise despite Sarah's wavering doubt. He continues to act according to his character despite her unbelief at times. And here we see this wonderful character of this God who knows all, that he is still faithful to his promises. Anything is possible for this God. He can bring life from a dead womb, despite wavering belief at best. We see his compassion, despite Sarah's lying. He, he, he matter-of-factly corrects her. He doesn't let her continue with the worldview that she can hide things from God, because it's just not true. And to let Sarah continue thinking that she could pull one over God wouldn't be loving. God says, no, you did say that. And then he moves on. The comic genius of the situation is that you sit here and think, how dumb do you have to be to think you can hide something from the God who knows all? (laughs) Seriously. How dumb do you have to be to think you can argue with God and show him what's right? How dumb do you have to be? As dumb as me, because I do it. Don't you? God won't see this thought that I have. I can hide this from him, this motive, this desire. I didn't really do that, God. What I was trying to do was kind of like this. Shut up, Rowan. I see all and I know all. God knows all. We're going to see this repeated over the next two chapters. I think it's because it's something that we need to understand. Don't be dumb and think you can hide anything from God. There's a great line in pop culture today. If you hide things from God, Monique says you're dumb. Thank you. You see, for on the day of judgment, we'll not be able to pull the wool over God's eyes. He will say, no, you did sin. No, I did give you my word. No, you did have enough to respond to me. No, you did have a chance to come back to me. No, I did provide a way for you to be forgiven at phenomenal cost to myself. God knows all. But the next thing that we see about God and his character is his justice. His justice. Although we might not like justice when it's aimed at us, We know justice is right. When we're shown injustice, we cry out for justice. Right these wrongs. And here we see that justice comes from God's own character. Look at verse 16 of chapter 18. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was with them. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. See, God here is for our sake showing us into his world to say the reason I'm doing what I'm about to do, the reason I'm showing Abraham What I'm about to do with the evil in Sodom and Gomorrah is so that he might know what justice is and that he might see that right living means taking me at my word. For that's how I'll bless him. 
I've offered him these promises. I'm going to grow him. But he needs to know how to live in response to the promises of God. What's about to happen is a lesson for Abraham and it's a lesson for us. God will display his justice. So that Abraham has burnt into his brain the importance of keeping the way of the Lord. God's displaying his justice. So you and I have burnt into our brains the importance of obeying the Lord. Not in order to gain God's blessing, but because he'd already given it. This is how we respond. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Now, it's not here that God doesn't know what's going on. We've just seen he knows everything. It's that he's giving Abraham insight into his character. So he has this opportunity to display both his justice and his mercy. What does God think about a world that turns against him? What does God do with such people that don't treat him as God? I'll take a walk with the narrator and us through the ruins of this story in the city of Abraham. Sorry, the city of Sodom. But before we see God's just judgment, God reveals another part of his character in his compassion. The two men head off to Sodom while one remains behind with Abraham. We see that this is Yahweh, this is God. And the question that's on Abraham's mind as these two messengers of God march off to Sodom to bring down God's judgment. The question that's on Abraham's mind is the same question that's on my mind. And probably yours. Does the whole city deserve to be exterminated? So Abraham steps forward and says to God in this cheeky kind of way, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You're like, whoa. He steps up to the God of the universe. Then he asks in kind of a bold and daring way, what if there are 50 righteous people? Will you really wipe away, if there are 50 righteous people, will you, will you still wipe away the whole lot? And then he kind of just goes, all right, and God says, no, it's okay, I, I, I will save them. And he says, well, what if there are 45 righteous people? Will you really wipe away those 45 with the, with the whole city? And God again kind of says, no, no, for, for the sake of 45, I will spare the whole city. And so he goes for another five. What about 40? That's like some bargaining thing. He just keeps going back to God. What about there's 40 people? No, I'll spare the city for 40. So he's like, oh, this is going pretty well. I'm going to stop moving by fives and up it to tens. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And every time we see the compassionate and loving answer of the God of the universe. God is just, but he's also compassionate. If there are just 10 people who treat God rightly in Sodom and Gomorrah, he'll spare the whole lot. As a kid, I experienced uh, my fair share of discipline within school. Uh, one of the things that Sarah, because we were in the same class together, she, she originally didn't like about me was the fact that I caused her great pain because I was one of those kids in the class that would do dumb stuff and the teacher would say, that's it. The whole class is staying in for 10 minutes into lunch. Were you ever in a class when that happened? The teacher punishes the whole class because of the stupid acts of the few? 
I was fine with it because usually it was me who did it. And I'm like, that's just, that's fair. But those that didn't are like, hey, what about me? Did you ever have that happen? God is so unlike that. God says, if there is just one person who did the right thing, the whole class leaves on time. Just one. The whole class could have been dodgy except for one. But the whole class can go. He is so compassionate. He's extraordinarily compassionate. We'll eventually see that it only takes one righteous person to save the whole world. God the Son who would die on the cross, whose death was sufficient for the sins of the world. One righteous man is all that it took for God's wrath to be absorbed for those who trust in him. What a compassionate God. There's just so much right about Abram's prayer, though, isn't there? His heart for the sinful inhabitants of Sodom. His godlike compassion for others. Despite their paganism and their depravity, Abram cared for these people. He prayed and he did not lose heart. He pleaded with the God who controlled the universe for justice, for God's name's sake, and for the sake of those that he loved. He said, Lord, please, please don't let this happen. As I reflect on Abraham's prayer, I reflect on my prayer life. And I think, do I pray like this? Do I come to God with such boldness like he's my dad and plead with him? Plead with him for things that are in line with his will like Abraham does. See, at the moment, my, my grandma's 95 years old. She doesn't know Jesus. Her future is not good because she is not trusted in the one righteous one who died for her. But what Abraham reminds me of is the, is the wonderful fact that God allows us to plead like Abraham. In fact, God wants us to plead like Abraham, to come to him and see his compassion and boldly approach his throne and ask him to bring people from death to life. Do you pray like Abraham? With that boldness and persistence. Not like you can arm twist God into doing it if you do it enough. Like God's like, oh, shut up, okay. No, but praying to God like he's our dad, coming to him like it matters, like we care. Abraham encourages me to pray with persistence, in line with God's will. And what we see is that in the end, it's actually God answering Abram's prayer that sees Lot saved. Chapter nineteen twenty nine. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain. He remembered Abram and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Plead like Abraham, won't you? For those that don't know Jesus. For God's justice and righteousness and compassion to be known. Plead like Abraham, won't you? Well, here we see that God is not only a God of compassion, but he's also a God of justice. And the story, like the city, is a complete shocker. So come with me and hear the story of Sodom. The story of Sodom. As the men enter, we're not actually sure what Lot's intentions are. These messengers from God, they come into the town and Lot invites them to to stay with him. But they don't want to. Don't you think that's odd? Why do they say, oh, we'd rather stay in the square than in your place? And it makes you think, what is Lot like? 
We already knew what Sodom was like, because in chapter 13, verse 12, how we hear that Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities of the valley and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning greatly against the Lord. We know Sodom is evil. Sodom are living in a way that's repulsive to God. And then as these men come in, Lot invites them into his house. Stay with me. But they say, no, 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 we want to stay in the square. He's like, no, no, come. And we get to 19 verse 4. And the phrase again is ambiguous. Before they went to bed. What does he mean by that? Was Lot inviting these men, these angels, these messengers of God to come and sleep with him? Has Lot become like Sodom? Has he been too close for too long? Is he like this city? But the men of the city of Sodom, Genesis 19 verse 4, both young and old, the whole population surround the house. They call out to Lot and say, where are the men who came into you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Now at that point we go like, what? Like what? This is, this is like, this is twisted stuff. What is going on here? Why is this happening? What is Lot like? Is he just like the men of Sodom? But then the narrator shows us something of his character. Verse 6, Lot goes out to meet them. He shuts the door behind him and he stands as some sort of human insulation against the wickedness of the city, keeping these messengers kind of safe inside. He says, verse 7, Don't do this evil, my brothers. And at that point, you're like, oh, Lot, you know, he's, he hasn't become like them. He's sweet. He's standing there defending them. And you kind of go, maybe this is all right. Verse eight. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't had sexual relations with a man. I'll bring them out to you. You can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they've come under my protection of my roof. We are meant to be horrified at this. This is not okay. To offer your virgin daughters to people to do whatever they want is not okay. That is not what a father should do. This would be a betrayal of trust. It's horrific. The the, the narrator wants us to be horrified. And the question we've got is, has Lot lost the plot? Has he? Has Lot lost the plot as well? Has he now actually become just like this city? The the narrator wants us to see the effects our surroundings have on us. Is Lot just like Sodom? Are we just like Auckland? At that moment, Sodom turns on Lot. They they hate him. They say, we're going to harm you more than we're going to harm those guys. And then he's kind of stuck outside of this human kind of barrier going, ah! And they start coming for him when God's messengers stick their arm out the door and go and pull him in and shut the door. And then with a quick little flash, open the door and everyone else goes blind. Like, that's pretty cool. See, Lot tried to be the one who could save himself and his people, but he couldn't. It was only the messengers of God that would save him through nothing Lot did, but through their actions that save Lot from death at the hands of this city. But what about his daughters? Well, I want to say to you that Lot didn't really offer the city his unmarried daughters. He didn't offer the city his virgin daughters because he didn't have any virgin daughters. 
the narrator's been going through the story and kind of has tricked you through this to think that, oh, Lot, what do you like? Because the narrator wants you to think, has Lot become like Sodom? Have, have you become like the world around you? But actually we find out a little later that he didn't have any virgin daughters at all. Look at verse 12 of chapter 19. Then the angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in this city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place. For we're about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Well, Sodom's fate is secured. It is so sealed. It's gone. Verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. He's like, what? How does he have sons-in-law? Sons-in-law means that his daughters are married. And then we read who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law, I thought he was joking. Now, at this point, every translation says that the sons-in-law were going to marry his daughters. Except the King James. I don't, I'm not usually a King James lover. King James, it's kind of, I, I can't even understand it. Um, but also, it's not based on the best kind of general man, manuscripts as you go through. And sometimes you're like, yeah, yeah. But on this occasion, the King James actually gets it right. Look at the King James on the screen. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters. Literally, the sons-in-law that took his daughters. That's what it says, literally. The problem is, lots of interpreters have come through and they've been tricked by the very narrative tool that the narrator's using to trick us into thinking that Lot is just like the world around us. The thing that he admitted early on was that Lot didn't have any virgin daughters. He had daughters that were married. And really what was going on earlier was that Lot was kind of putting forward a ploy to buy time. He wasn't actually offering his daughters. He's saying, I'll go get my daughters for you. Why do we think that? Well, it looks like here that they're married. As you look at the New Testament, um, 2 Peter looks back and sees Lot as positive. Lot's daughters were married. And at this moment... The narrator is kind of now showing us a bit of information that switches the whole story around. It still makes us ask, have we become like the world around us? But here we see Lot hasn't. His plot didn't work. They didn't fall for that. He needed God to step in and rescue him. At this moment, he runs around with the city who are blind. And he goes to his sons-in-laws, but they don't come. They think God's judgment is a joke. That's what it says. His sons-in-law thought he was joking. And doesn't that sound like, well, the world around us? God judged? Oh, it's so, you know, so medieval. You think that there'd be justice or judgment. And the world around us thinks this judgment is just something that we've made up to make people scared, just like Lot's sons-in-law. And what we find out is they paid the ultimate price for ignoring the judgment of God. Verse 15 of chapter 19. At daybreak, the angels urge Lot on. Get up. Take your wife and your daughters who are here or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. Even Lot's lost his hastiness, right? Daybreak's coming and Lot's sleeping. Like, what are you doing, Lot? We're about to smash the whole city and you're asleep? Get up. Take your family. Come on. Mush, mush. Get out. What are you doing here? Like... Verse 16, but Lot hesitated. But Lot hesitated. 
there's something about the draw, the seductiveness, the comfortable nature of the city that he's living in that he does not want to leave, that he's not sure he actually wants to trust the true and living God in. He hesitated. And but for God's compassion, he would have burnt as well. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. God rescued Lot. Get out, you clown. How many times does God do that for us? As we're tempted to love the world around us, to focus on its trimmings and trappings. We get caught up and we hesitate and we think that the world that we left is a world that is good and, and we kind of, we know that God's grabbed us by the hand and he's saved us and he's son, but we want to go back and we're like a little kid who's going, I want to run on the road, it's so much fun. Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plane. Run to the mountains or you'll be swept away, say the messengers. But Lot and everyone goes, oh. But Lot said, to them, Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor in your sight and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but can't I, run to, I can't run to the mountains. Disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to run to. It's a small place. Please let me go there. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. He just consistently wants to be close. And while Lot's not totally like them, the magnetic effect of the world he chose to live in has a disastrous effect on his family. His two daughters sleep, to him, sleep with him. He doesn't know it. He was drunk. He thinks that they're, they're pregnant because of the, the sons-in-law that they were married to. The whole family ends up kind of producing the enemies of Israel and, and the whole thing just disintegrates. We don't drift toward godliness. We don't drift in life and just suddenly turn up at being more like Jesus. It never happens that way. We drift to be like the world around us. There's a sense here in which you read this and you think, come on, God, just show him how stupid he is now. You know, strike this whimpering dead man who wants to flirt with evil. Show him what you're made of. Get rid of him. You just kind of want to stand there and go, what is wrong with you lot? Show him what you're made of. And that's exactly what God does. He shows us what he's made of. His judgment is right. The penalty for sin is all-consuming, but God's mercy on those with just a fledgling faith is unmistakable, unheard of. Lot barely trusts, and God removes him from the situation. His mercy overflows. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but shows us great Great mercy. The ultimate basis of God's blessing and salvation was not human righteousness. We all fall short. It was God's promise. And he's fulfilling his promise to those who trust him. Because of one barely righteous man, Lot, God spares the whole town of Zor. It makes me think, imagine what God can do through one truly righteous man. One who died in our place, who never rejected the true and living God and always lived for him. 
What a joy it is to know that we are forgiven through Jesus' death in our place, through his resurrection, that we can live with God so long as we keep holding on, as God keeps holding on to us, that we trust that he is the true and living God. We must not miss the fury of God's wrath. Sodom is wiped out. Their rebellion is so strong. God's justice rains down on that city and evil was snuffed out. Rebellion was stopped. God judged Sodom. Lot hesitated. But Lot's wife looked back. She longed for the city that she was leaving. So she lingered, looking back to that place she wanted to return to. The question for us is, where are you lingering in sin? Where do you want to live like your old life or like the life you're considering leaving? What thing are you so fixated on that you won't give it up compared to eternal life? What is God's spirit saying to you tonight? Where is he poking you and me? Where are you pulling away from the hand that saved you? You will not find satisfaction in the sensualities of this world, but in the Son who died for us. In Luke 17, Jesus tells us on that day of judgment when he comes back, Luke 17, 31, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. We have been led by the hand of a God who has showed us incredible mercy away from our sinfulness, haven't we? We didn't decide to walk away away from our sinful lives. God grabbed us and ripped us out. He dragged us away from the destruction that we deserve for rejecting the true and living God. Hold on to his hand. Do not pull back. Abraham believed. Sarah doubted. Lot's wife turned back. Remember Lot's wife. As we come to the end of the story, we come back to Abraham. And we find ourselves in the same place that he left when he spoke to God last. Look at verse 27. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. And he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain. He remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot lived. The pillars of smoke bear testimony to the seriousness of sin. We're reminded that Abraham is standing in the exact place where God said he would rescue the righteous, and that's exactly what God did. But this whole morning where the sun rises and he sees the smoke rise points us forward to another sunrise. When women run to a tomb and the stench of death is not there. For Jesus has risen. Death is defeated and life has been offered to us. It points us forward to the fact that Jesus has died for us. And if we hold his hand, if we are held onto by this true and living God, 
then our future is secure so long as we don't turn back. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi wrote these words, and it will do us so well to consider them. And to consider tonight where we stand before God. Let me read them to you. For indeed the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Friends, what a joy it is to know that God does not leave us in our own wickedness. That he has led us by the hand to the cross of his son. Do not hesitate to trust in this God. Do not linger with the sensualities of sin. Don't look back. But trust the God who has secured your salvation and never let go of his hand. For in him, he gives life and the promise of blessing forever. Let's pray. Father, tonight, as we think through this story that really is so odd in so many ways, we're very aware that you see everything in us. You see our sin, you see our rebellion. And we're so thankful that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, that you have sent your son who died in our place, that you've been compassionate and loving. We ask tonight that you would help us to keep coming to you like Abraham does. To bring before you our desires in line with your will. We ask that by your spirit and through your word, you'd show us where we are tempted to pull away from your salvation. To reject the offer of life and forgiveness that you've shown us in your son. Father, tonight, would you do work in our hearts? Thank you that Jesus died in our place. Thank you that our sins can be forgiven. Please help every one of us this night to hold on to you and to run to your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.